1: And we are back with an all-new episode, all-new year of Keep It. I'm Ira Madison III.
2: I'm Louis Fertel, and already on social media, we're calling it Season 6. I guess it's year 6 of the podcast. I just want to say that I think the most famous Season 6 in television history is Saturday Night Live, and that's when they almost got canceled. So look forward to that.
1: The most famous in history, Lewis.
2: I, I don't know if you, I haven't seen like the official rank or list of season sixes. Well, I guess Sex and the City season six is probably notable too, but season six on SNL was when Lauren Michaels left and then Gene Domanian came in. And then the only two people from that year that survived for the following year were Eddie Murphy and uh, Joe Piscopo. And everybody else was cast into a dungeon that Lord has the key to. I am currently. Rewatching
1: *Sex in the City*.
2: Oh, really? I, I every once in a while just fall into it because it still is on E in like thirteen-minute segments. Right. So it'll still be on, and
1: I feel like that's usually how I've consumed it since high school. High school, college, where I bought a um, bootleg box set from Japan. <laughs> uh, but
2: it's not pink. There <laughs> is it like deep fuchsia or something?
1: And the episodes were like very much. Whatever order was going on. But now mm-hmm. I'm rewatching, uh, you know, as part of my return to New York, which is very cliche. But I'm also realizing that I've never really watched them in a complete succession like this instead of just popping on a random episode or just like deciding like, oh, I want to watch this episode from this season. So it's, it's you know, people always bring up that first season where it's a lot of talking to the camera etc but i also want to point out in the first season carrie has a lot of male friends oh that's
2: right you're totally right i forgot that about that aspect of the show because of course i didn't seek it out at all i simply wasn't interested (laughs) in it
1: uh but you know it's it's sort of like she's she knows so many people in new york to interview and it it feels very you know um it 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 like there's a lot of people and a lot of things going on and then of course those people all vanish so
2: she's a connected reporter it's very she said if you will
1: uh speaking of she said um i'm kidding i have nothing to say about she said
2: you have a new weinstein take i was curious yeah <laughs> weinstein innocent <laughs> <laughs> and i have the receipts and it would have to be quite a few of them actually our guest
1: this week is georgina chapman
2: Oh, you know what? I missed when she would guest judge Project Runway. In fact, I've been thinking about Project Runway uh, for a specific reason this week, and I'll bring it up when I get to my keep it.
1: Oh, okay. That's exciting. Uh, But no, um, she said, of course, is a film that is allegedly in... um, (laughs) Awards contention. Uh, <laughs> it's this it's year. sort of in
2: the third orbit of awards contention. If if they <laughs> if they don't get to the other two orbits, maybe they'll consider the third one.
1: But uh, we are going to get into
2: the films of the year. Jesus, there are so many we watched over break. By the way, I just want to say I never want to take this much time off of, again. Me, just in the dark talking about movies I've seen to myself <laughs> on Christmas Day. Real bleak. <laughs> Kafka.
1: Uh, Of course, we're recording this on the day of the Golden Globes. So there will also be another second bonus episode coming out later in the day. Uh, As you're listening to this, there'll be another one coming out, which will be our Golden Globes segment um, recorded after we've actually seen the show. Which, once again, is airing on a Tuesday night.
2: uh, Bewildering. Uh, I just want to say... This is a risk on our part, too, because we're assuming there's going to be something to talk about. And I really don't know what the Golden Globes is anymore. Is it like it used to be, you know, a drunken spectacle, and it feels like it's now going to be like a very, like, um, liberal AA meeting. Like, it's going to be a lot of apologizing for what the Golden Globes represent, what they once were, you know. Every award will be on behalf of human trafficking survivors. Like, I don't know what it's going to be.
1: (laughs) Okay, but also we're in the middle of a tsunami in
2: Los Angeles as well. And by that, you mean it's raining pretty hard. Uh, it, it
1: is like torrential downpour. It is – there. Is, there's like flooding in West Hollywood, and Silver Lake. It's it's giving yeah, I,
2: I, I live in West Hollywood, and I'm looking out my window right now, and the streets – I mean, it truly is giving Winnie the Pooh and the blustery day. I feel like I'm going to see the mayor, uh, you know, <laughs> rowing by in his leaf – I don't know why I, I'm i currently
1: in L.A. Um, for this week. And I drove to see The Fablemans last night, which we will discuss. Only because, you know, I, I've just seen – we saw Babylon at um, The Grove this past weekend. And um, I felt like Fablemans – Fablemans is actually a very good companion to this film to have seen. So I'm happy that we'll be able to discuss it later in the episode. But I was – I was like, am I going to make it?
2: (laughs) Well, it's L.A. too. So, you know, when there's raining going on, people just park their cars in the middle of the street and start crying. They just give up, you know. (laughs) You call your agent and you ask, is it almost over? Um,
1: So we're going to get into the movies, which is exactly how you want to kick off a new season of Keep It. Um, Although, like I said, we usually this is the first one where we're not talking about the Globes. In I'm the first upset. Episode. You're right.
2: You're right. Because our first actual episode of Keep It, it was like an Oprah centric discussion of the Globes. Did she win like the Lifetime Achievement Award that year or something?
1: Maybe, but also people kept talking about wanting her to run for president.
2: Oh, that's right. It was like a, a of the rock esque conversation. Yeah. Dumb. Yeah, rem- remember that era? <laughs> Enough.
1: <laughs> anyway, we also have a wonderful guest this week. The delightful Anna Kendrick joins us.
2: It's crazy how long we've known who Anna Kendrick is. She was a Tony nominee when she was a child and still uh, hundreds of movies a year. How, this person is constantly working.
1: Well, you know, I was also a Tony nominee as a child.
2: Oh, is that true? Oh, yeah. Billy Elliot, tell me how'd that go?
1: Um, A, uh, a Tony's Pizza oh, okay. nominee.
2: <laughs> they nominate <laughs> people down there?
1: Okay. Uh, anyway, we've got movies. We've got Anna Kendrick. We've got... Keep it. It's been so while since I said keep it to something. It feels right. Yeah. So we'll be right back with more Keep It. If you haven't seen it already, you need to check out the stunning artwork for our new podcast, Keep It. We wanted to give a shout out to the talented team who made it happen and helped the vision come to life, including my friend and iconic photographer, Cella Shaloni. Tune in every Wednesday for fresh episodes of Keep It, and don't forget to follow us so you never miss a thing. Grab your cape and strap in because X-Ray Vision now has two episodes a week. Featuring expert guests and unique analysis, hosts Jason, Rosie, and Cody journey their way through the hottest pop culture topics and test your fandom knowledge with panel discussions on your favorite franchises. Get ready for deep dives and more with X-Ray Vision every Wednesday and Friday. Don't wait. Tune in now wherever you get your podcasts. 2023 is off to a massive start already. First of all, Megan, which is Avatar for gays, uh, is out in theaters. And it's one of the many movies that we caught up on over our break. So we're going to catch up on everything that we've been consuming. And I think it's only appropriate that we start with Megan, which is not an awards contender, but maybe should be.
2: I'm going to say it's not awards I follow, but maybe somewhere down the line, you know, May- I really do think there should be a best January release Oscars where it's just, you know, the new uh, psychological horror movie that's like two and a half stars versus the new James Marsden movie versus, you know, just the things that are like not in contention for the real thing. I'd like to put them all against each other. What's what rom-com is JLo attempting, you know? That gets into the best picture category.
1: Her current rom-com is her relationship with Ben Affleck.
2: That's true. And we can't stop watching. Um, Megan. I will say I had some dread going into Megan because something about the promotional materials, like the funny dancing, like her movements and stuff, it felt to me like they had given everything away in the trailer. Like I just knew how crazy she would be. And to a certain extent, I think that's true. I think there's not much the doll actually does in the movie that blows your mind or shifts what you get from the trailer and what the extreme promo campaign has already given us. We've seen people dressed up as Megan on red carpets doing her, you know, tantalizing, weird, off-kilter dancing. But... Ain't nothing wrong with a conventional horror movie With a funny doll Because her reaction shots in the movie Are why you should go see this movie
1: uh, <laughs> I think that is maybe the most underrated thing About the film Cutting to Megan Reacting to <laughs> At anything dinner, I want to say yeah. Is It's so fucking funny And it never got old
2: No Literally her eyes would just shoot <laughs> left and right You know Like a character in a Poirot mystery And it was funny every time. I truly I would actually compare it to uh last summer when we had Isabel Hupéra on, she was promoting a movie called Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris mm. with uh, uh uh Leslie Manville. And the thrill of that movie is there's like, you know, lovely dresses in the movie. It's a fashion centric movie and you get to see leslie manville reacting with delight and awe to everything and megan is the same way these things unfold except it's a horror movie and then you get to see megan who is raising an eyebrow or looking to the right or you know furtively planning a murder and you all see it on her face
1: and i think what's actually a highlight of this as opposed to child's play which you know this movie isn't child's play by the way, Child's Play is a masterpiece of the genre, uh, and also is much gorier. Uh, the one disappointing thing I will say about Megan is it's PG 13, so we right. don't get as much as the gore, as much of the gore as I felt like we deserved. But what's beautiful about this film is that she is a talking doll who's sort of like AI, so you get to interact with Megan early on, as opposed to waiting for is this doll going to start talking. And be creepy. You sort of, you're sort of in on it from the beginning. And everything that bit says is funny. I mean, <laughs> it was in the trailer when she says, you know, like the line, I thought we were having a conversation. But somehow it was funnier in the movie where, <laughs> I don't know where this fucking southern twang of hers comes from. She <laughs> says to Allison Williams, at one point she's like, now hold up. I thought we were having a conversation. <laughs> and it's just so funny hearing Megan say anything.
2: Also, the word conversation, <laughs> just in general, is funny. It's very ayanla. Or you know. also, I, I I think as as it's going along, I think the movie is well made. Like you're not watching it thinking, oh, this is an amateur production or it's entirely kitschy. I wouldn't call it extremely scary either. And the end and the ending of the movie in particular is like a bit anticlimactic. But it really is note for note basically the boy next door. If you remember that Jennifer Lopez movie, where yeah. the whole premise is. This thing, in this case, a man, is obsessed with you. And so he's going to do all he can to protect you. And oh, now he's in the, the, your backyard. Now he's over there. Now he's killing Kristen Chenoweth or whatever's going on. It's the same feeling of that, um, except you get funny doll reaction shots. I literally would say there is no difference between those two movies. So in, in a way, the problem with Megan and also why it's watchable is that it's extremely conventional for a horror movie of this type.
1: I will say though that Megan does not give me the same feelings that Ryan Guzman does.
2: Oh God! By the way, what did we do with him? I know he was in Everybody step Wants. Up. Him. A step up. Step uh, up. Can you believe it? I'm not entirely versed in those films, uh,
1: but I miss him. Actually, he was he was he was like one of our hotter, um, you know, sort of generic actors who's in a step up movie, can sort of dance, does a couple other things, and yeah, then I guess sort
2: of. Vanished. He um, was shockingly—I mean, extremely, extremely attractive. I don't mean uh, to play down the step-up movies, as you know. At the Actors Studio, I studied under Professor Dewan Tatum.
1: Actually, I found out where he is. Where so many of our actors go to die. Uh, he's on the Ryan Murphy series, Nine One One.
2: Oh, I was going to say, is it a, a streaming series? I've never heard of, but that's always a possibility. This—I've brought up this theory before. You're—you know—you think of. Some actor you're obsessed with, and you're like, God, it's been three years. What happened? It's like, I'll tell you what happened. The Stars Network, they're doing a long time <laughs> show there. <laughs> when
1: I look at the cast of 911, first of all, Angela Bassett.
2: She's still on it. It's, She's it's still like a Mike Molly it. situation. Yeah.
1: I don't know what deal she signed with Ryan Murphy, the devil, <laughs> but she needs to be freed.
2: <laughs> God, it's really crazy that that show is still on. Peter Crosby.
1: Jennifer uh, Love Hewitt.
2: Legend. Jennifer Love Hewitt. One of those people who I believe never stopped working. You, like, if you piece it all together, it's like, how long was she whispering ghosts? Was it 18 years? Maybe.
1: Which actually tells you that Jennifer Love Hewitt loves acting and working. Yes. Because, or she has a lot of gambling debts. I don't know. Uh, because the Ghost Whisperer, Party of Five, time of your like Time of Your Life, she has been syndicated i mean the ghost whisperer alone uh must be like paying all of her paying for every house she owns right
2: well also something about jennifer love hewitt my suspicion is that she's great to work with and this is what this is based on i'm being a detective now she Mm -hmm. is one of the few very memorable episodes of mtv's diary where Mm -hmm. her best friend on that show was literally a fan she met I feel like that means you're down to earth and not a crazy person. Like I'm, I'm not saying go and befriend the person who runs up to you on the street. Absolutely not saying that at all. But if you're just like, well, whatever, she's a cool person. Why not hang out? Maybe you're down to earth. I don't know. Feel free to DM me theories about that.
1: That sounds like a thriller, like The Roommate or something.
2: Yeah, it. I mean, it's. I, I basically just told you what Ingrid Goes West is. I don't. I don't mean for it to sound like that. But she was just, like, cool beans about everything. Yeah.
1: I mean, listen, has anyone from the cast of Kids Incorporated not
2: turned out to be amazing? I know. <laughs> I mean, I can only think of Fergie right now, but great. Yeah. Oh, no, wait. Eric Balfour: the- Right. Of course. Of course.
1: Uh, yeah, Fergie was in um, uh, Kids Incorporated. Yes. And two other people, Mario Lopez and... I love your smile, Shanice.
2: I fucking love that song. If I'm at CVS and that comes on, I'm in the splits and I'm and I'm laughing and I'm and I'm singing. She was also it in that video too, giving you like that full like 45 tooth mentident grin.
1: Yeah. I'm I'm I miss Shanice. Come back to us.
2: Great song. Yeah. I think it was sampled recently somewhat in something. I forget what. I
1: feel like Shanice could very well come back to us because everything but the girl is releasing a new album. Like their first Whoa. in twenty, their first in twi- Did
2: you miss this? Their first I in sure twenty three. Their first in twenty three years. Oh my god! What about Deep Blue Something? I'm a defender of the song Breakfast at Tiffany's more so than I am the movie Breakfast at Tiffany's.
1: So Shanice, now's your time. I want to know what you think about his smile now.
2: <laughs> Has it changed? <laughs> yeah. Has Line uh, affected the conversation?
1: Uh, <laughs> So anyway, Megan is fun. Uh I would highly recommend seeing it in a theater because, you know, you it, must see it's and, and see it films. with
2: eleven people. See it with eleven people.
1: Okay, now we can get to the awards movies. And I would say if we were doing our own version of, you know, the Keep It Awards, what are your best pictures that you've seen?
2: Okay. Well, we've discussed Tar already. I think Tar is still my number one in terms of a movie that leaves you. With questions in a really good way, really intentionally. Um, There's so much that's mysterious and surreal about the movie, but it's all in the service of getting in this main character's head. And she is just among the kind of deepest and hairiest characters we've had on screen in like 10 years. So I have to say it's my number one. I did enjoy After Sun, which, have we talked about that? We have not. I have
1: not seen it yet, but I am quite familiar with Paul Mescal and his legs.
2: Yes, right. And uh, they're not normal people, legs. You know what I'm saying? Now, uh
1: two things about Paul Mescal: One, he's going to be in Merrily We Roll Along, which um is not a great Sondheim musical, and I kind of wish it would die, but I'm here for him singing.
2: Yeah. And, uh, and also, he's taking over the role of Blake Jenner, just to bring this back to Everybody Wants Some. But, and he yeah. has spent 20 years filming this. This is that... Uh, movie with Beanie Feldstein that's supposed to take 175 years before we get just the right musical we need.
1: Yeah, Richard later. You yes. know, um, I think my friend Juan said something about Richard is going to die in the editing booth.
2: Right. I, I mean, he has no choice. These <laughs> projects are like seem like um, labors of Hercules. It makes no sense. The other
1: thing about Paul is that he has been spending a lot of time with Angelina Jolie.
2: Right. Which, of course, you and I are going to support. Uh, apparently Phoebe Bridgers is now out of the picture. Maybe. Uh, But he is an awesome actor. Also, it's interesting. He's like sort of a fringe for the best actor conversation this year. And it's because this is a movie that is not um, in your face. It's a very unassuming film in certain ways. It's an emotional movie that draws you in. And it's also a movie where you're piecing it together and it's only at the very end when you're sort of clear on why you just saw the sequence of events that you saw. And it's... uh, uh, tender and uh tough in a way but man he is just great he the kind of actor who doesn't look like they're trying at all even though they're doing so much he's he's like sort of the quintessential 2023 actor right now like awesome just sense of normalcy and reality about him and it draws you in and it doesn't feel contrived in any way i don't know he's just really right
1: yeah i'm a big paul mescal fan and i'm also looking forward to him being in gladiator the sequel
2: i'm don't think I've wrapped my head around the fact that we're getting a Gladiator sequel. That whole era of movies feels very dead to me. It's like if we got a sequel to Iris or something. <laughs> Jim Broadbent, come back to us. Yeah. Uh, I would say
1: that um, one of my faves this year is, and I know that you didn't love this as much as I did, uh, if only from your tweets, but um, Banshees of Inna Sharon.
2: I I enjoy it. It felt like an elongated short story to me, like we could have handled it in 45 minutes. But uh, the, the the thing where I differ from the conversation is that I do think Colin Farrell's really good at it. I think he's better in After Yang. And I also think the two other main characters in it outshine him in the movie, which are Bre- Brendan Gleeson, who weirdly has never been nominated for an Oscar, playing a curmudgeonly man who, in this Irish town in the, uh, I think, the 1920s... Uh, Basically, this isn't giving anything away. It's in the first part of the movie. It's just sick of hanging out with Colin Farrell. He's sick of seeing. Him. And it begins with him saying, I don't want to see you anymore. And they're just friends. And now they're not. Then uh, Colin Farrell's sister in the movie is played by an actress named Carrie Condon. And I kind of can't explain Icon? what this woman does. I can't explain how she does it. I, there's not one part of her what she has to do on screen that's like weird or... Demanding, And yet it's so full of life and so en- enchanting. And if this movie didn't have her, they it would be a completely different movie. She's excellent. Would, wouldn't mind if she won Best Supporting Actress this year.
1: I think that that's actually why I love Martin McDonough. And I've always loved him. Um, and I've forgiven him for Three Billboards now.
2: I was going to say, uh, I do think that is one of my disappointments <laughs> of the decade, Three Billboards. Yes. Uh, but I
1: think it comes from him being a playwright too. You know, it's just that character... In, in, like in any other sort of like writer's hands would just be like Colin Farrell's sister and she's just sort of there to like say a couple sassy things and then leave. But there is so much... To her character from even the short amount of scenes that she's in it's just like a, a complete arc and a complete sense of like longing and a complete sense of how she fits into this community um, and how she fits into these people's lives you know even like from interactions with other people at the pub like how they react to her like it shows like how well they know her i just mm-hmm. think i think it's a really beautiful film i do agree that it's sort of he's sort of like taking his time with the yeah. film, like it's longer than it needs to be, but I will also say that you know, like I never really mind hanging out in the worlds that he creates.
2: Yeah, I mean, if you're if if you're going to spend too much time any one place, it better be you know idyllic Ireland. You know, it better be yeah. yeah look, it better look like an illustration on a box of pastels, which and is what Barry, this universe is. And
1: Barry Keoghan was fantastic,
2: as always. He comes on screen and just like your body folds in on itself because you're like, this man is capable of too much creepiness. What am I about to get into? That fucking movie, Killing of a Sacred Deer, it hasn't left me.
1: Yes, that, and he really, he really stole Cillian Murphy's game, didn't he?
2: You're right. Every once in a while, you, it does feel like you can see when one actor takes over where another one was. And I always say this in regards to Michael Shannon taking over the Christoph Waltz spot. It feels mm. like we just stopped one, began another. <laughs> um
1: what else did you love this year?
2: Okay, film-wise? well, this is this is very borderline in the awards conversation. In fact, it, it, it's not even fair to say that it's just, it's out of the conversation. But guys, I thought I want to dance with somebody was good. I did too. I
1: was. I am. First of all, the entire movie is Naomi Ackie.
2: She, she w- is. She was great. Phenomenal. Yes. Why are people talking about her? That She absolutely summoned Whitney Houston. And we gave her the hardest parts to do, which is recreate this concert footage. Now, I'm not saying every time I watch a biopic, I want to see, you know, millisecond by millisecond recreations of famous moments in this person's life. But she really brought them out. I was watching, you know, that AMA's performance she slayed, that the Super Bowl. One by one, you really... The Whitney Houston moments lined up, and they were believable. I loved her dynamic with the actors who played Robin, who was also amazing.
1: Yes, her wigs, criminal. <laughs> her suit, but they were at the
2: time awful. Yes,
1: but, <laughs> yes. <laughs> but she's yes, yeah, she's like a fucking star. She was lip syncing for her life. Okay. Yes. <laughs> like congratulations, like she's the winner of this challenge. Like I would love for Naomi to be nominated. I think she's fantastic in the film i think that you know she it's an example of her really sort of carrying the film uh, this is another outing from casey lemons and you know we've had casey on keep it um and i think she's so smart um and obviously she directed one of our favorite films eve's bayou but yes. the official I,
2: film of keep it yes
1: <laughs> but i will say She still has not directed anything like Eve's Bayou since, you know, because this movie was, it was, it was giving, it was giving pedestrian.
2: Well, I mean like Eve's Bayou is in its own sort of like haunted spiritual realm. And this is very much in the mold of a movie like, I'm sorry to say it, Bohemian Rhapsody. But I would say it's better than Bohemian Rhapsody in that, yes, it's a Wikipedia of events, but it's so tasteful in what it decides to get into. For instance, I think Casey Lemons or the, wh- whoever made this choice made the right choice by saying the most fascinating thing about Whitney Houston is her relationship with Clive Davis. You know, yes. what they had to go to through for her to get to that height, what they navigated once it started to fall apart. And you get in a way, the prototype Stanley Tucci performance, which is
1: he's so tender he, in this movie.
2: Yes. He's, you know, he's giving you a fat Stanley Tucci who, you know, is supporting the female hero and lightly critical of her at all times. We've seen that a few times before. And I am also referring to burlesque. They really get into <laughs> One of his the best roles. Of, yes, please. They really get into the intricacies of what it took for him to kind of guide her back onto the rails, how she would push back on him. That to me is a very interesting dynamic and something we don't see in a lot of movies. And it, it elevated uh, the film for me.
1: It's interesting that you brought up Bohemian Rhapsody because, of course, Anthony McCartan wrote Bohemian Rhapsody and this film. And yes. um, I, I would call him one of our um, hardest working hacks in the business.
2: <laughs> you, you can be a good hack.
1: Okay, so let me, because t- like theory of everything, darkest right, hour.
2: Wow, wow right hopes, down the line, right down the line.
1: Yeah. And unfortunately, one of the worst plays I have ever seen, the collaboration. Oh, Sorry, Jeremy Pope and Paul Bettany. It's on Broadway now. It's about Warhol and Basquiat. And it is also just like Wikipedia pages talking to each other.
2: Oh, know, no. I mean, that's, you can expect some of that when you look at this. I call these movies Trumbos. Remember the yeah. movie Trumbo? It's like that. <laughs> Also, if you remember but, the movie Trumbo, you might only be me.
1: But this is. I don't know. It's one of my things about bio books. And I, and I feel like at least this had a point of view with the Robin relationship and the Clive relationship. But I will say that, like, this is my problem with, like, the collaboration and, like, you know, theory of everything and things like this. It's like, there's really no point of view, especially Bohemian Rhapsody. There's no point of view. There's no, what do you have to say about this person? It's just, no, here's this person's life and some bullet points. It's like, but you you haven't said anything.
2: I don't know why yeah, you as an right. artist were drawn to this. And also because of that, the movie then feels extremely safe too, you know? Like I, I would compare Bohemian Rhapsody to the movie J. Edgar, where it like walks up to wondering what was really going on with Jay Edgar and the cross-dressing, but then sort of averts its glance and then walks another direction and doesn't really say anything. Like Bohemian Rhapsody had some explicit indication of like, oh, he's gay and like here's what was going on in his life. But it also just felt like the other band members were responsible for making it a very anesthetized film, ultimately. Uh,
1: Unfortunately, the collaboration is also being filmed. So... Wow, you lose again. (laughs) (laughs) When we're back, more of what we've been watching on our break.
2: And I am the coziest a human being can be. Because by the way, it's still that time in Los Angeles where it's like pretty mild outside. And then your apartment is cold. I can't explain Mm. it. I don't know things like basic science. For Keep It listeners, you can get 15% off your first purchase at barefootdreams.com with the code KEEPIT15. Don't miss out on Barefoot Dreams soft, soothing fabrics that will bring luxury to your life. Black Stories, Black Truths
1: is a celebration of blackness from NPR and how I live my life every day. Oh, I'm glad to bear witness to it. <laughs> Each of NPR's Black voices are as distinct, varied, and nuanced as the Black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment,
2: and creating world-shifting things out of a struggle. It sounds like you at Coachella. I'm already tuned in. Every episode is a living account about what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. From Bobby Schmerda to The Wire— Michelle Obama to reparations. There's no limit to the range of Black stories, Black truths.
1: Black perspectives have not always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now they are the story. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Here a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcasts that center Black voices. It's NPR Noir turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as very nuanced and black as the country we reflect stories should never be about us
2: without us doesn't the black experience sound like a three disc Prince album we never got someone check the vault please (laughs) listen now to black stories black truths from NPR wherever you get your podcasts
1: and we're back with more movies chat
2: uh, should we talk about Babylon now? Yeah, guys. I swear I'm a more critical seeming person than this. I don't want to lose credibility with everybody, guys. I thought it was good. I uh, the first hour, <laughs> slay, like they this movie throws itself at you. Says, look, we are just going to be Hollywood, come dump, disgusting zoo. It's going to be revolting <laughs> at every turn. Every like every frame of this movie for the first two hours looks From like the first frame. A, Yes, the um,
1: looks, an elephant shitting on someone is how right. we start this
2: movie, and I was like, you know what, I'm in. May as well, yeah. right? <laughs> uh, but but it's like every frame of this movie looks like a, a Where's Waldo image. There's just twenty thousand people there; they're all doing something different. You know, tubas flying in different directions, saxophones, whatever, and then you get the performances, which I think are good. Even Margot Robbie, who I feel like will be left out of the best actors conversation this year, but I will say, and this was a question we had when we saw the previews, why is she styled like 1980s Madonna? Why could they have why couldn't they have just made her seem like an authentic late 20s person? It like is completely sticking in your head as you're watching this film and she's speaking like somebody who could not have existed until the eighties
1: her jazzy accent yeah, right she's from New Jersey, right? Is she? I I, I don't remember where she's from. There's a lot going on in the movie, okay? And I also loved it. But I will also say Damien Chazelle needs to be in prison.
2: (laughs) It's definitely too fucking long. And also, you know what movie I would compare it to? The Wolf of Wall Street, speaking of Mm. Margot Robbie. The first two hours are just full of like, I'll say it kind of machismo-laden whiz-bang. You know, it's like fast and gross and uh, profane. And then in the last hour, they try a couple of weird warped turns. One of them I like, and then the other one, which is basically the coda of the movie that becomes into a a big... We love movie making montage. It's a fan cam. Totally sucked. Yeah, it's it's a fan cam. It is totally a fan cam. It is a fan cam. And
1: I'm always like not a fan of films about the pictures where it sort of ends with someone just sobbing as they're in a movie theater. I'm like, okay, (laughs) are you just supposed (laughs) to? Right, we're there
2: now. We're in the theater now. We're already here. Yeah, you're
1: supposed to be making me sob. Right. You know, I think I thought that, you know, first of all, I'm happy that he made the film that he wanted to make. Um, I feel like I like La La Land better than this film. But, you know, it's it's a testament to just, you know, like an artist making a film that they really want to make. And I respect this film a lot. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, he made the film he wanted to make. It's, it's what he has to say about film. Um, the ending's a bit trite. But, you know, I just feel like overall, I love the excess of the film. This, this truly does not stop. You know, like there's, there's a scene towards the end between Gene Smart and Brad Pitt where things sort of finally stop and people are really having a conversation with one another. And it was nice to breathe. You know? It wasn't so right. tense. It wasn't all the shit happening. And I felt like that was great. Like, one of my favorite scenes in the film, I thought Gene Smart was fantastic. Brad, I didn't really give a fuck about in this film. Um, Interesting thing
2: about Brad in this movie, I think one of the things holding this movie back is that it's a character, one, he's played before, and two, could play in his sleep. It yes. Just In a way, you, it felt like you were watching a continuation of some other performance you've already seen of his. I did like that scene with him and Gene Smart, though I think she gives one of the least impressive performances in this movie, and maybe... I'm just, a, I've had it a little bit with representations of Hedda Hopper types. Like, mm. you know, a uh, uh, grizzled, tr- uh, uh, snappy woman who walks into the room with a feather that's 11 feet tall pointing out of a hat. Um, speaking of Trumbo and Helen Mirren therein. But um, this movie, I think, has one of the great shooting a movie scene scenes ever, which is Margot Robbie taking take after take to do this one thing. And they're also, she's also having to contend with how new sound is in movies. So the um, LOL um, stress the crew is going through to deal with it is, is very inventive. I thought that was an awesome scene in the movie.
1: Uh, speaking of like a of Hopper type, you know, Tilda Swinton and Hail Caesar, which I actually think is a more successfully made film than Babylon. I think Hell mm-hmm. Caesar is incredibly underrated. I loved that film so much. And I think George Clooney would have probably brought like George Clooney, I think, would have had that necessary sort of like depth that you needed for this role that Brad didn't really bring to it, you know. And I say this yeah. as a former fan of Brad Pitt. Um <laughs> as we know I'm team Angelina Jolie. But uh it, it's just it wasn't one of my favorite brad performances i loved lee Jun lee in the film but once again yes damien chazelle underserves every character who's not white
2: yes uh i will say about george clooney i think he would have been a more interesting choice for the role because it would have been a sleazier role for george clooney which we don't really get from him whereas i think brad is a, too accustomed to sleaze at this point like it's yeah. it's less um novel it's 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 less interesting to see him have to do the kind of a grizzly uh, aged out actor things he does in this movie.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, no, but Legion Lee plays this fantastic character in the film. Who's just sort of kind
2: of an anime Wong. Yeah. yeah.
1: But she's sort of like written out like halfway through the film, you know, and then reappears. And it's just a, like, she was one of the most interesting characters in the film to me. And it was sad to see her drop out. And I'm just going to say this now. I need this man to stop writing about jazz.
2: <laughs> you know, you know, we have had it. And I want to say I, we, we voiced our it. concerns at the time. We voiced our concerns at the time, too. Yeah. And uh,
1: listen, I, I, had, I had, like, minor criticisms of the jazz storyline in La La Land. Um, and then somehow became the face of hating La La Land. But this, I really did enjoy this movie. But I want to say, the jazz storyline, you know, it just, it made, it just, it disappointed me. Mostly because you have this black character who's a jazz singer, you know, and then, you know, like there's the advent of blackface and Al Johnson and all that going on. But it's just sort of everything that he was saying about Hollywood and like, you know, like the things that people will do to make it in Hollywood, you know, like the like the the drive that's there. It, it didn't really jive with this story that he was telling because, you know, I mean, it's just sort of like, oh, well, the black person's going to, you know realized the real art is doing jazz with other black people. I was just, I, I didn't get where it was going and it felt so removed from the rest of the movie.
2: I will say that because this movie has its own disgusting point of view, it, it, it has more value than what I'm about to say. But this movie is the most expensive Ryan Murphy's Hollywood of all time. too. <laughs> you have to know you're getting that this, like I'm going to lightly rewrite Hollywood history To say, what if this happened or this happened and this person ended up here and this, you know, like this anime Wong type um, had this other kind of arc and was friendly with the Brad Pitt type legends. Um, And as you remember, that didn't do anything for us ultimately once upon a time. But uh, I think this movie is better than that.
1: I also just say that like with those characters zipping around each other so much in the film, there's never really a moment where they are with one another you know what i mean yeah like Mm -hmm. it it doesn't seem like the relationships have a lot of weight which ultimately is why i feel like the the main romance of the film doesn't really work for me
2: yeah the main relationship in the movie which is margot robbie this burgeoning star and diego calva who plays uh this guy who basically walks onto a set hoping to get a job and what happens to their characters throughout the movie they basically they sort of intertwine they're sort of good friends and then they need each other at random moments. But yeah, yeah it's, it's sort of a sparse relationship. Yeah. Um, anyway,
1: I really, I really enjoyed this movie, and I would say that um, a counterpart to it is The Fablemans, which Another is sort we of a We Love also, Movies movie, yes. Yeah, which, you know, um, Spielberg loves a We Loves Movies movie. And surprise, surprise, I loved it because you know what? Spielberg's good at what he fucking does.
2: I I like the sentimentality of the how this young character, this boy, who I guess is Steven Spielberg, comes into being a, a filmmaker. And I liked, and Spielberg always does this well, how the kid has a clear but very small window into adult problems. Like they yes. capture that well. Like I'm reading what's happening to my kind of kooky artist mom and what's happening to her relationship with my dad and this other guy who's in the picture, and I'm figuring out what it all means to me. But I have to say, I think the movie falls apart because you need to just be invested in the fact that this is what created Spielberg. Like, that has to be the thrust of the drama for you. Otherwise, it just sort of felt like, yeah, this kid's growing up in the suburbs and sometimes life sucks a little bit. I don't know. it, It felt like it was very low stakes for me. And also, among Michelle Williams' performances... Somebody else said this, and I can't remember who. I apologize. Mm -hmm. They said something about Michelle Williams' acting that rings true to me, which is she's a brilliant scene partner. Mm -hmm. When somebody's being, like, a dick to her, she, like, knows how to emotionally respond to that really well. Or, like, Mm -hmm. be in a great two-person scene. Think of her at the sink in Brokeback Mountain or when she has that confrontation with Casey Affleck at the end of uh, Manchester by the Sea. But here, I think she's supposed to be playing an odd bohemian artist type who happens to end up being a somewhat conventional suburban mom. And to me, Michelle Williams has no natural eccentricity about her. So her choices to make this character feel real don't amount to much more than sometimes she's happy and sometimes she's sad. I'm really surprised this is what people think is her big Oscars moment because to me, she does not have a fucking prayer against Michelle Yeoh or Cate Blanchett or Danielle Deadweiler until. Like all three of them have her outclassed fully.
1: She should have stayed in supporting, to be honest. Yeah. And I feel like I was discussing this with a friend as well because I've just recently, over the break, uh, and we'll get into this, but I've been catching up on like a bunch of Casavetti's films. Sure. You know? Uh, and I finally I love saw a good opening, uncomfortable viewing. <laughs> well, I finally saw opening night for the first time. And, you know, oh, like a Jenna Rollins, like sort of fucking masterpiece. But that is what Michelle was giving. She starts the movie at a fifteen, yeah, and I feel like unfortunately, like Spielberg has to catch up with her performance.
2: Yes, yes, you know,
1: um, she's what she said about like her being a great scene partner, but doing stuff on her own is sort of just not working in the film. And I think that's it. Like she just the movie starts like Michelle is just doing a lot. You know, and eventually she comes down to earth with the relationship with Seth Rogen and the disintegration of her marriage with Paul Dano. And then, of course, you know, um, her relationship with her son. I will also say that Gabriel Labella is fantastic in this film. And I'm look, really look, Yeah, I'm really looking forward to what else he's going to do after this.
2: Yeah, it's a hefty role. I mean, he's playing, you know, our eyes into the movie and also a kid. And I I, just in general, I think in the past 10 years, kid actors have just really improved and dropped what my, our general feelings about precociousness. I feel like those are going away a little bit, you know? Yeah. Not everyone has that sort of Ian Armitage sheen over them.
1: Well, he's also 20.
2: (laughs) (laughs) All right, he's an adult, yeah, functioning now. But, um... I mean Spielberg's
1: also just still good at finding like young talent, you know. Right. Uh
2: Oh my god, if you have if you, I mean if you haven't seen the footage of Henry Thomas trying out for ET and you can hear and he does this incredible um tear-strewn thing to get into the movie. Spielberg's response to him is just unbelievable. He's like, "Okay, kid, you've got the part." Like almost afraid of him. <laughs> it's really fun. But I will say uh something I liked about this movie. So Tony Kushner is the screenwriter on it. It gets into Uh, an anti-Semitism storyline, which I think is great and adds real depth to the movie. But then there's this whole segment where he's bullied at school and he shows up the bully by creating a film that has him in it. The bully's response to that, which is heated and strange, makes no sense to me. And my guess is It really happened to Spielberg in real life, and he tried to get it on the page and into the movie because he felt it was such an unusual experience. But as a piece of story in this film, it does not work for me. And it's not emotional, and it's just strange. I would posit
1: that maybe some of that happened to Spielberg. Maybe some of it happened with Kushner. Mm. If only because that scene felt like a gay coming-of-age film.
2: And yes. I thought yes.
1: <laughs> the, I, there was a scene where I thought that this boy the bully in school was going to kiss him.
2: Yes, right. Like oh you you you've uh, you've seen through my rage and guess what's underneath. A I'm a homosexual. Hit. Yes. <laughs> I'm a <flag laughs> it, he screamed. But it that's where
1: it seemed like it was going. And I think that would have been an interesting story and I also now think that I need Like Spielberg has done every like coming of age film, you know. You know, I think we need a gay one.
2: You're right. Actually, I'm upset.
1: Yeah, and I think with Tony working with him, like I like their. I love their partnership, um, from Lincoln to this and West Side Story. um, Mm -hmm. I think that I would love. To see what he'd do with that, you know. I mean, listen, I wouldn't want many straight male directors like tackling like a gay coming of age story, but let me tell you, like Spielberg's second best film, in my opinion, is um, The Color Purple. So, uh-huh. you know, and you couldn't t- you couldn't tell me a white man directed that film. So, but you know, <laughs> he's also Jewish, you know, so it makes sense. And um, yeah, I would just I would agree with what you said about the film not – it it's doesn't really go over um, the – it doesn't really reach that point where I'm like, this is like a best picture. And it's not mm-hmm. even in the best, uh, like in the top ten of um, Spielberg's films. But no I way. do think it's its just always nice watching a film of his because he knows what he's doing. And it's always nice to know that like you're in the hands of a director who's going to tell you a story that's going to move you. I was moved. Whether yeah. or not no, no, no. it, it feels all professionally completely done. works, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But I also, I just also think his lastly his filmmaking in this film is great. I mean, talking about Babylon, the scene you know with Margot Robbie and the tears. I felt like a lot of the sequences where Sam Fabelman is making films were my favorite parts of the film.
2: Yes, I agree. He really captured something there. I'm sorry, my mind is still blown about how he really should have a gay protagonist because Spielberg is so obsessed with both the whimsy and the sad, lonely heft of childhood. And how better to realize both those things than to get into a a character coming out. Anyway, he should do that.
1: Yeah. Let me tell you something. (laughs) Being gay in childhood is
2: a sad, lonely heft. (laughs) Thank you for that one page monologue that I read when I'm trying out for the fall play. Thank you.
1: (laughs) Any other performances that you really loved this year?
2: Uh, uh sorry, yes, performance. Uh I brought up Daniel Deadweiler in Till, which I finally saw. Now she's
1: so fucking good.
2: Jesus Christ. First of all, who are you? You can't just be good <laughs> like that. <laughs> I have to know, I have to be prepared for the talent you're about to bring. When I have no like coordinates to put me on the earth you live in, i I get very confused. Um so Daniel Deadweiler plays the mother of Emmett Till, a slain uh child, and as the movie begins, you know you're going to get, like, uh, the trauma performance. You know you're going to get the the woman being like, why did this happen? It's it's going to be horrible to watch, you know, hearkening back to the 30 Rock parody, Hard to Watch with uh, Tr- Tracy Jordan. I did not expect what this movie really is about, which is it's a lot like the Meryl Streep movie, A Cry in the Dark, which is a movie about a woman who is being perceived constantly by the media, and her steeliness and her resolve to tell a particular story about something that has happened to her and her family and represent that well and not give people sort of w- what they expect basically even even if it would be in in their idea in her best interest um i was just blown away it's it's such an impossible performance it's the amount of devastation in it is like impossible to comprehend, and just what she does, and how how you it, you're locked into her thinking every step of the way. I'm always so impressed when people can do that. Um, a, a performance I think that is not at all like this, but reminds me of that is Saoirse Ronan in Brooklyn. It's a that's a movie about a woman making decisions, and you famously you love have women lo-
1: making decisions.
2: That's please, women Sarah talking. Polly. Sarah women talking? Polly, where's the movie Women Making Decisions? Please, yes. <laughs> Um, a movie I liked, by the way, kind of forgot about, but I liked it. Um, yeah, I just, you're, you're so locked into what's going through this woman's head. That's all I can say. It's fabulous. So that's I, and fabulous is a crazy word for this movie. It is so hard to watch certain times.
1: That's because you don't like women talking, Louis. You like women thinking.
2: <laughs> yes. Right. <laughs> Silently thinking, you know, you want to yes. see their face, uh, She's- I want it to be like Garfield where we see the thought bubbles though.
1: Yeah. <laughs> well, listen, one thing about Mamie Till is she loves lasagna. <laughs> um, no, listen. Also, um, Chinoye Shinoye Chuku um is a great director For, between clemency and this.
2: I did not know she did clemency. If you are not caught up on the book of Alfrey Woodard, I think it's she's at 178 Emmy nominations at this point.
1: <laughs> this is yeah, that's like that's a great back to back. Of films, and also two films that you know. I mean, unless Danielle like gets a nomination for this, um, an another film that's just sort of like under the award season radar because, like, Alfrey should have been nominated for Clemency.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's uh, I think to me her definitive film performance. She was nominated once uh, in the eighties, nineteen eighty three, for a movie called Cross Creek, which is about the um children's author. Marjorie Kinn and Rawlings, uh, played by Mary Steenburgen. But, uh, anyway, yeah, I mean, all I can say this year is Best Actress is basically the only real production we have going on for the Oscars, because the, the Cate Blanchett component, the Michelle Yeoh component, and the Danielle Deadweiler component, these are three very disparate performances. You, you can't compare them in any way. So voters have a real extreme and, uh, kind of strange decision before them. I'm really looking forward to it.
1: Uh, I would say I really loved this year um, Taylor Russell in Bones and All. I did not I love her in great. that movie.
2: I thought you he didn't? was great and I thought she was not good. But um, I, I felt like she got that, assigned that character that day to me. Not, not a
1: student scene
2: yeah. at DePaul. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> I tried out for DePaul, failed, by the way. Anyway, uh, I
1: liked her. I really loved um, Nicholas Holt in The Menu.
2: But Nicholas Holt I did not know he had that level of douchebag in him. Uh, this is not my opinion. Another Are you not I'm watching stealing. The Great? I guess. Not, oh, I, nope. I've never seen it, so you're right. I'm missing something. He is. Um, so I loved him in The Favorite. Yeah.
1: Funny in that. He's so funny, and he plays like a dumb asshole douchebag in The Great too, which is like really fantastic. And um, did not.
2: I did not care for the menu, other than Ray Fiennes is one of my favorite actors. But I will say. Janet McTeer slayed it. Loved her as that character, as like the the sort of pretentious restaurateur. Yeah, she was really
1: good. I liked the menu, and it sort of reminded me a bit of, I saw it right after Glass Onion. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I would say that, you know, like Glass Onion um, as an ensemble piece gave the characters like a lot to do because, you know, like it's a murder mystery. And I would say like that was sort of one of the downfalls of the menu. You sort of got brief, Flashes of who these characters were, you know, just to move the story along, but I don't really think ultimately you learned anything about these characters and like right. the ending, the ending feels like completely false to me.
2: I think the problem with the menu is it feels like a Twilight Zone episode to me where the twist where you learn what's really good going on should be the end of the movie. And then unfortunately it goes on for another hour where you're already like locked into the twist and sort of ambivalent about what occurs afterwards. Um, Glass Onion which maybe we talked about before, but quickly I will just say. um, I've seen it twice, loved it, watched it with my family, good family viewing. I do think the movie has a slight problem where it goes from setting up the mystery to explaining the mystery. There's very little time in between where you're actually in the mystery. That said, everybody is well cast, and it was nice to see Ed Norton playing, you know, a rich D-bag.
1: Yeah, the, the, the mystery element of it was lesser than in Knives Out, and I think that Knives Out edges out glass onion, um you know as my favorite but i really had a good fucking time watching glass onion in theaters which i hunted down to watch in milan um because i was like i want to see this movie in fucking theaters lastly my favorite movie of the year was triangle of sadness
2: oh uh, what i mean what a trip the movie should be called what a trip um (laughs) that's every
1: ostland film though like the square force majeure it's like you you go in with like a concept of what the film's about to be and then an hour in because this films are always long an hour in you're like oh no wait this is a completely different fucking film
2: yes uh uh there are two giant twists i, I the middle section of the movie i like best i don't know that i love the this is kind of spoilery Survivor portion of the movie, even though Dolly DeLeon is really good. And I also, the final beat where they just stumble upon a luxury hotel, very funny. I did yes. think that was very funny. Well, one uh. of the
1: best um, needle drops of the year. Hearing that Fred again song, and you're just yes. like, what the fuck is happening? And then all of a sudden, <laughs> oh, beautiful. And I would say that... Um, I'm mean, going to bring it back to what I was saying about Cal Savetti's. I, I was reading, like, an interview with him, too, just about how, like, how he works with his actors. And it's why I sort of like his, you know, like he had his own acting, like, style, you know, too. His thing was really about, like, letting people create their own characters and, like, just staying in a scene too long because you would let the actors really sort of interact with each other. And I think what Triangle of Sadness does very well is – Austin will just sort of like, like, I think of like the opening where they're arguing over the check, or I think about the square with Elizabeth Moss um, and the condom. Like, it really just takes scenes and like lets actors just sort of like be their character
2: and have fun. Yeah. It's not rushed. Correct. Yeah. Uh,
1: Also, uh, okay. Anna's in the waiting room. Let me just say this guy's name. Um, Also, Harry Dickinson is so fucking
2: hot. Oh, Harris Dickinson, please. Uh, you you think I didn't watch Beach Rats? Like, I, I barely could even <laughs> look at him. It was like looking at the sun. I was like, some people are so hot, you're embarrassed you have to see them. Like, it's just like, oh, God, like, why do I have to be a human being in your presence? It's so tough. You know what I
1: would say that he is? He's sleazy Paul Mescal.
2: Which we need. Paul Mescal, a little cleaned up for me.
1: Yeah, you know what? If 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 there's if there's like a Sweet Valley High reboot with, with like them as men and they're adults, Harris Dickinson paul Mescal, (laughs)
2: that that proposition that everyone's constantly making thank you for finally verbalizing it yeah call me up zaslav
1: i'm ready to make it for hbo discovery (laughs) max whatever the fuck it's called yeah right (laughs) all right coming up we are joined by anna kendrick
3: As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love made-in cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust made-in. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use made-in cookware. Shop chef-quality pots and pans at madeincookware.com.
0: Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style
1: You know our first guest of 2023 from Pitch Perfect, Into the Woods, Love Life, 100 Other Things, and now you can catch her in Alice Darling, which drops exclusively in AMC Theaters on January 20th. Welcome to Keep It, the delightful Emmy, Tony, and Academy Award-nominated Anna Kendrick.
4: (laughs) Oh my goodness, that felt very sincere. You're very good at this.
2: <laughs> Years of practice. The, the authenticity <laughs> is merely a veneer.
4: Five minutes ago, he was like trash.
2: You know what's interesting? Uh, uh, I, I It's crazy that you have all those award nominations you can't you're just you're just like you seem like a you know regular actress you know but you're in this Viola Davis category with all these fucking nominations uh
4: thank you for calling me uh, someone who seems just like some regular actress first of all <laughs> i'm just going to i'm just going to take everything you say and twist it that's going to be my Please. game the whole Please. the whole recording yeah. um yeah it's um i actually cuz i had been nominated for a tony and oscar and a grammy and i'd lost all of those and then i got nominated for an emmy and i was like I kind of hope that I lose because then <laughs> I get to say like, I'm an EGOT loser.
2: That's Which I, if I'm not I, mistaken, think it's there was kind
4: of funny. <laughs> you
2: no, know, if I'm not mistaken, Lynn Redgrave is for the longest time was the only person to be nominated for all four and not win any of them. So you would be joining very slim ranks.
4: It, I mean, that's surprising because certainly it seems like there would be a lot more EGOT losers than EGOT winners.
2: Right. But, right.
4: But, but, <laughs> But you're saying that usually along the way someone wins something. <laughs> but nah, nah.
2: you divide the odds in a way. I can't explain it.
4: I'm a tra- a trailblazer, yeah. Yeah.
1: To be fair, a lot of our egot winners are they they don't win it competitively. The t- the, tony, the t- a lot of our egot winners have Tonys for producing a play.
4: Yep. But that, yeah, that's fair. I need yeah. to get in there.
2: One of those like winners where it's like it's like pages long. You're just like it, like a scroll at the end of a movie. Like that's yeah. the, the level of winner. A lot. Of I these do always are. love
4: seeing um, at the Tonys like when uh, best musical guest announced that you know it's the main team around the microphone and people just keep trickling on slowly. Who you're like? <laughs> they don't seem. I'll bet you no one on that crew and cast knows who that person is.
2: But
4: they <laughs> technically did something, so they get to kind of like aimlessly wander on and go. Is it's happening? I did it. I'm here.
2: <laughs> it is a ton of people. Yes. No,
1: especially living in New York, you will be. I will see the the L A party thing is you hear someone talking about like a show or a movie or whatever they're working on. You will be at a party in New York, and someone will tell you that they are they're a producer on Mean Girls, and you're like, <laughs> okay,
2: sure. <laughs> <laughs> me
4: too. Yeah. Me too. Babe. Me too. <laughs>
2: While we're on the topic of awards, um, thinking about uh, the awards campaign for Up in the Air is a specific time for me because it was just when I uh, moved to L.A. It's an interesting season because Monique basically steamrolled that year. She oh my was God. like That movie was, came out very oh. early on. And so people mm. were very attuned to that performance early on. But you were there every step of the way. And so... What, was it fun to be a part of that conversation with the co-star, Vera Farmega? Yeah. A- and then uh, who else? It was Penelope Cruz and uh, uh, one more. Oh, Maggie Gyllenhaal, who also sometimes looks exactly like Vera Farmega. That's how I remember.
4: Was it Maggie Gyllenhaal? Jill- it, it's, um... Because uh, I think there were, um... Uh, yeah, I think it was me and Monique, and I know Vera got nominated for everything, if not almost everything, or whatever. Um, and then it was kind of satellites. So I, I, yeah, I, mm-hmm. I probably don't remember. You probably remember better than I do who was nominated for what. Um, but uh, yeah, I think that there was actually something because I saw Precious at TIFF uh, when Up in the Air had you know like premiered at TIFF, and I can't remember who, which one happened first, but like it was. It was one day after the other. And I remember like watching Precious and thinking, holy shit, this is a hell of a performance. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. And then like the, you know, those kind of final scenes with Monique happened. And I was like, oh, well, for God's sakes, this is like a performance for of, like the, for the ages, you know. Correct. Um, yeah. And it was like kind of a relief. Like at that point, to be very clear, at that point, the idea of being nominated for an Academy Award was not, I actually remember, sorry, I'm rambling, but I remember it was at TIFF that I was doing some interview with um, Jason Bateman. I was paired with Jason Bateman. And he made this comment about like, well, uh, you know, she did great in the movie. And I, you know, I think this spring you're going to like be picking out a, a really nice gown. And I remember this is weird, but I actually remember at the time almost thinking like he was be- he was like almost being kind of mean, like teasing me or something like in the way that if it had been a movie about swimming, he might have been like, ah, the Olympics might be calling. You know <laughs> what I mean? Like,
2: it was just so like a oh, light taunt. Just, yeah,
4: yeah a, a light taunt. <laughs> exactly. And um, and so like the idea of being nominated was like just I was just getting questions about that and stuff. And it seemed so you know, out of the realm of reality and everything. But then once it started like feeling like, oh, everybody thinks this thing is going to happen. And then it did happen. I was like, oh, it's kind of a relief to just know like it's a sweep for Monique. Like there's no award show where I have to be like, maybe I should have my speech ready or like, there's no like, oh, I won this one, but not this one. And then it also felt like me and Vera weren't competing Like, Mm -hmm. it was, you know, it was kind of nice to just be, like... Because it was also the year that Christoph Waltz was nominated. And it was the same thing where it was just, like, it's his year. (laughs) Like, it was, like, a hell of a performance, performance of a lifetime. And it was just, like, I'm just here and I get to drink. Like, cool, great. (laughs) I don't have to do anything. I just sit here and I go, mm, wonderful, wonderful. Uh,
1: I want to talk about one of your earliest performances, which is so interesting to me, remembering the film Camp where I feel like you, you know, you have ladies who lunch in that. And (laughs) since then, I think like you are one of the actors that I would like heavily just associate with Sondheim now, you know, because you have that. And then of course, Into the Woods. Um, Just sort of what, does Sondheim as an actor, just doing Sondheim scare you? Or are you used to it now?
4: No, I mean, Sondheim is so difficult. And I, I think that even like, Real musicians, uh, which are not me, uh, would agree that Sondheim is so, so, so difficult. Um, but it is so much fun um once you get over the hurdle of like, I'm never gonna crack this. Um, because it is like getting a little line reading from a genius. Um, and you have freedom to um whatever, you know, explore and make discovery within that. But he's really telling you, here's your intonation, build from that how you want to, but you know, there's not like a kind of um a a sweeping melody where you have like all this room to um backphrase and interpret and whatever. It's like you know, he's given you this um this framework, and it's very hyper specific, but and you have enough creative freedom within it, but it's you know, it's like so fun and so challenging. i I feel like I'm being annoying, but it's yeah, i i I, I love Sondheim so much and. I will also say that he, yeah, so he was in camp and he showed up and he saw uh, some, like a rough cut of Ladies Who Lunch on the day that he was uh, on set and doing his cameo. And it was like, what did he say? And uh, he apparently said, she has the most perfect teeth I've ever seen. And, (laughs) you know, as compliments go, I'll take it. (laughs) Um, It was like... (laughs) I was over the moon that it wasn't just like you're butchering this song or whatever. Um, and then when I did uh, a little night music at New York City Opera when I was 17, I was so intimidated by the cast, uh, especially, of course, when you're 17, you're like especially hoping to impress the the cast members who are like mid 20s. And uh, the first day of rehearsal, I think he was there. And he like walked over and was like, Anna, nice to see you again. And just walked away. And I was like, oh, the 20 year old saw that happen. Oh my God, I'm, in. I'm the coolest. This is amazing. This is so great. Um, Yeah. And then obviously on into the woods, it was like, I had like this extra excuse to be, I mean, I'm really being generous with the phrase, like, work with him because he was updating the lyrics um, for Cinderella's song for Steps of the Palace to be in present tense. So he would just kind of come in and make little tweaks when it wasn't feeling right and like make tiny little changes. And so it it felt like, ah, yes, we are collaborating. This is wonderful. (laughs) Uh,
2: So we've spoken about Camp. Another movie that I feel like brought you a a different kind of fandom. And I want to talk about the specific fandom devoted to you and the very disparate demographics it's comprised over the years, but A Simple Favor. Exactly. When when that movie came out, it felt like like people kind of expected to like it. And then it's like it took over a specific sect of Twitter. Like it's the movie they could not get off their minds. And there there were lots of parts of it. You know, it was like the, the whiz bang of the movie. It was you know, what Blake Lively was wearing. It was the craziness of the movie. Did you have any idea it would really catch on? It, it, I'm trying to even think of another movie I would compare it to that it like sort of electrified that demographic in a way. I don't know, like Hustlers or something? I'm not even sure. Oh,
4: yeah, that's interesting. Um, Well, yeah, I wasn't sure if you were talking about demographic or not, but I I would have a hard time trying to figure out a movie to compare a simple favor to right. uh, just as yeah. a movie, um, which m- was challenging for me and for Blake. Like on set, we were always looking at each other, like, "What movie are you in today?" I'm not. <laughs> like, I'm. What are we? I never know because um, it's really fucking wild to be like it is a comedy and it's really glossy like we are you know I'm dressed crazy she's dressed beautifully the the look of the film has a certain feeling that's you know very slick and very glossy and yet I'm talking about voluntary incest and there's murder (laughs) and intrigue and like yeah. And all of those things are just sort of baked in and like how we were just like, I don't, I don't know. I don't know how this is going to get pulled off. And we were always like, like with comedy, it feels like you're on this like sliding scale of uh very subtle to very broad. And you're, you know, maybe doing options, different takes of like, where am I on the slider? And with a simple favor, I remember saying to Blake, it feels like I just, the button just like came off. And now I'm just holding it, and I don't know where to put it. And, like, what What do I... I can just move it in 3D space? Like, what the fuck are we doing? Um, Which, again, was was really exciting and, and really strange and scary. And I think it really wasn't until we saw the movie that it made sense to us.
2: Yeah, I assume it's a movie where you had to just trust that the tone was being taken care of. You're just yeah. like, well, I'm going to do my thing, and then, you know, well, maybe it'll come together.
4: Yes, no, and I think, obviously... Paul's track record speaks for itself, but it was not, uh, you know, he's known for bridesmaids and a very different kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And it's, yeah, I think it's exciting to be a part of something where someone's doing a thing they're not known for. Um, but yeah, also just going, like, I don't have like a, a reference point. I don't have anything to, to hold on to. And I, I felt really grateful to have, uh, Blake as a, uh, as a scene partner, because, it felt very comfortable you know she's such a pro and I, like it was just easy to go like how about this one we'll just do this you know it was just very simple and like straightforward and we were just kind of like uh down to do options and try things and like we weren't really getting caught up in uh like touchy feely stuff it was more just like let's try this option and this option. and just try to get paul what he wants because we we haven't figured it out yet but we're just hoping he has a master plan which he did
1: You know, the way Lewis talks about that film sort of like electrifying people in a weird way, I would say sort of that's a film that I always introduce to people if they haven't seen it the same way I introduce Down With Love to people. I'm always like, this is a very funny film that you might not think is for you, but once someone starts watching it, they're like, Oh, no, I love this film.
4: Yes, yes. Down With Love is actually a weirdly good example. No incest in Down With Love, sadly. But, um, (laughs) yeah, uh, that's what I always felt that film was missing. (laughs) Yeah, I love that as a reference. Because it is like, wait, where are we? What world are we in right now?
1: Uh, Speaking of music, uh, what we were talking about before, I find it so interesting that, like, I mean, you basically had the pop girl shaking with cups. You know, like, like, was that so weird for you to do like, you're doing the movie pitch perfect and like, cool. Okay. Like I'm singing the song in it, but then the song becomes a phenomenon and it's like basically like ruling billboard.
4: It was so weird. I was filming, I was in New York filming the last five years when it was again, so weird to say like climbing the charts (laughs) and I was taking a nap in a uh, the basement of a church in Harlem, where like it was the lunch break of whatever we were filming, and I remember like getting an update that it was like number six in the Billboard Top Ten, and really looking at it and going like, I don't, you know, I think it was like Miley Cyrus and like Macklemore and whatever I
3: don't know whatever <laughs> else was popular at the
4: time, and really just thinking like these people are like going on GMA and MTV and like promoting this single. And I'm just sitting here quietly in this basement and like, it's just happening. What is going on? Like, why is this happening? And it did occur to me that like, I would, yes, of course, like Miley Cyrus, this actual real musician must be going, what is this? What the fuck is this? <laughs> like, yeah. Which Yeah, not that like it was threatening in any way. I don't know about shaking, but it was like, oh, that must be a funny conversation that's happening with whoever else is in the top 10 right now.
2: After Pitch Perfect, though, I, I assume like the kind of a median Anna Kendrick fan, what they looked like. Changed. I mean, it seems like you just engaged an entire new world of fans with that movie. Would you say, like, is that movie like a dividing point in your career? But, like, there's before Pitch Perfect and after Pitch Perfect in terms of how I am received and, you know, kind of what people expect from me in movies.
4: Yeah, I would definitely say that. I think, um, uh, I I also like having a a fan base that at that time was very much like sort of 12 to 14 year old girls. Um, it, it felt like, Very a very marked difference in like I'm really not that famous too like I'm super famous because twelve to fourteen year old girls will let you know you know (laughs) like if a if a forty year old in a restaurant is like oh she was quite good and up in the air she like you might never hear about it (laughs) but (laughs) if you love Pitch Perfect and you're twelve years old I'm gonna hear about it so it really did feel like oh my god like what's happening um and it's obviously like very very uh, sweet and I would see. Um, I would see these girls like, uh, get into, it was like, oh, I'm at the precipice of a huge fight between mother and daughter when the mom couldn't operate the phone like right. when it's like, will you, and you hand hand mom the phone and like i could feel the meltdown of the of the girl standing next to me when it was like i think i just took a picture of myself like mom you're you're ruining my life so i felt like i was always trying to like mediate uh averting disaster between mother and daughter for a period of my life
1: <laughs> i feel like that's why so many people have reverted to we're just going to take a selfie you can see how the photo looks You do it very quickly, and then you're on your way.
4: Yeah. I'll usually, like, um, if somebody's really nervous, I'll usually just, like, sort of gently steal the phone out of their hand and just do it (laughs) for them, which, yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
2: I just want to say that there's a phone thief in West Hollywood, and I simply wouldn't be surprised if it were you, based on your experience (laughs) now handling the phones.
4: (laughs) Somebody's got to pay these gambling debts, Lewis. Come on.
1: (laughs) Um, I want to get into your latest film, Alice Darling, and just sort of ask, you know, like we were just talking about, um, the typical Anna Kendrick fan was after Pitch Perfect. And would you say that this was just a script that really – spoke to you, or were you also making a conscious decision you know to sort of like do different roles than your the pitch perfect universe that you'd been in
4: yeah um so my uh we can keep it light, but my personal life <laughs> kind of fell apart um my whole life kind of fell apart, and uh I, I it was a very similar thing to the the content of Alice darling, but um I think I also was just feeling like the idea of jumping back into something in the same tonal world as Pitch Perfect would have just felt impossible. And I was really um, uh, drawn to movies like The Assistant and uh, this movie Swallow, Uh, Mm. just these really, really restrained, intimate films. And I, I feel like there is a set of tools that I will reach for when I'm on a set and I don't want to denigrate a- any uh, you know, film or performance that I've done in the past. I'm very proud of those. But, and it was tools that I built intentionally because that's the kind of performer I wanted to be. But I think that I'd gotten myself to a place where I was really interested in making everybody at Video Village really happy. And, um, like, I just wanted to be like the star student. And I got a lot of self-esteem out of being on set and being the person when like somebody else was maybe nervous in the scene or not doing well that, you know, being the person that a producer would be like, oh, but we can always count on you, you know? And like, just knowing, like, I can figure out what you guys want for the dailies and I can give you that. And sometimes I think that that wasn't serving the film or the, the performance as a whole. And uh, I kind of went into Alice Darling uh, as a sort of personal challenge to tolerate the experience that I knew would come of people being like, "Um, this is OK. Like, I'm not sure, you know, like the day to day of it wouldn't be quite so validating. Um because I'm not being the kind of charismatic, like I know the tool I have to reach for. I know what you want me to do and I'm not going to do it. And I'm going to just, I'm going to tolerate the discomfort of knowing that you don't think the scene's really working and trust that I'm building a whole performance. Because I think like, especially the, the first 10 or 15 minutes of the film, Alice is kind of a bummer. Like she's not really that fun to be around, you know, she's kind of cold to her friends and there's just not a lot of life behind her eyes. And I think I also wanted to, you know, trust that people would still root for her and get on board with her because I kind of wanted to trust that I was still valid and deserved care when I was in that space. Um, so it was important to me to not um, kind of come out as the, like the, the pitch perfect Anna that you already are sort of invested in. And then, Hey, see me in this emotionally abusive relationship. It was like, you know, sometimes when things are going really badly for a person, they suck to be around. Um, and, uh, that was, uh, like hard to not be getting the attaboys, uh, that I usually try to kind of twist myself into being able to get uh, every hour and every day and every scene and um, kind of trust that uh, I could see what I knew I I wanted it to be and then sort of hope that that felt like something to people when they watched it.
2: Uh, We should say that this is a movie about a girl who is in a relationship where she's being psychologically abused. And what shocked me and you brought up a couple of movie titles just now is I can't really think of too many movies about this subject. Like I, like I can't in my head go to like, Oh, there's, I mean like you can like, there's movies like enough, you know, where, but that's a different type of movie entirely. Like you would never compare these two movies. I was wondering if it was intimidating to go into a movie that I I don't really think has many predecessors.
4: Yeah. I I think, um, uh, a phrase that I used when I was talking to the director in the beginning was I don't, Uh, I don't want to make a movie that I would have watched and gone. Oh, okay. Well, that's not happening. So I'm okay. Like this, this Mm. relationship is fine. I guess this is just normal conflict. And I think that there was always a temptation with this movie to kind of take the easy way out and go like, well, maybe just in one fight, he like shoves her into a wall. Because it it makes the audience's job as a viewer a lot easier to just go, okay, okay, we all agree he's the bad guy, she's the good guy, we're rooting for her. And to live in that discomfort and uncertainty for a big chunk of the movie is a lot to ask of an audience, but it's also really inviting them into the fucking experience of being in that position, in that relationship, because you are going like, I don't know if I'm the problem because... I really think I might be the problem. And um, yeah, it's uh, I think it's tricky to describe to people. And it's it's it was hard to continually push for pulling back on even the language that um, the partner uses. Like how many times does he curse at her? And, you know, um, because, again, it's like it would be a lot easier if we just went, oh, okay, so he is abusive and again, it was like something that I found myself really fighting for. And then, of course, going, well, I'm I'm sort of fighting for my past self, you know, to go like, this is enough. Like what's happening in this movie is enough to say that this is abusive and she deserves to get out. You know, this isn't normal. This isn't normal conflict.
1: Would you happen to say that you maybe feel as if, you know, uh, your profession as an actor, you know, sort of was maybe in sort of a hindrance and, you know, sort of this idea of, you know, needing to please people, even talking about the Valley Village thing, you know, like it's, did you feel that Alice Darling was able to afford you a bit of maybe catharsis that you hadn't experienced in other roles?
4: Yeah. Yeah. I think that's exactly right. Like I, I, I it's hard for me because in the same way that I'm very proud of this kind of tool set. And, and I love, I do love being like the pro, like, oh, she's such a pro, you know, um, on set. That's like, I remember telling my therapist, like somebody telling me you're really, really professional is like a bigger compliment to me than you're talented. So, Mm. um, so it's hard for me because I am, uh, proud of that tool set and it can be armor. And it was very scary, but again, very valuable to me, personally, to take off all that armor. Um, And I I felt very lucky to be surrounded by people who were drawn to this movie because they'd also had similar experiences. And it felt like a very um, safe place to do that because everybody on set was like, yep, been there.
2: (laughs) God, that Uh. sounds like, um, I mean is that like luck? I mean, like how did, how did this set come together? That seems like I, you must've been so grateful for that.
4: Yeah. I mean, I think that people um, who were drawn to this film uh, were drawn to it for that reason. Um, mm. I, I think that on paper, I, I think that the experience of watching the movie is uh, it's like a horror film, really. Um, you know, like I, I kept, I kept saying when I was kind of advocating for pulling back on um very black and white abusive behavior, I was like, nobody that's seen a cut of the film thinks like, I don't know, things seem fine for Alice. Like it's a very intense, horrifying movie. Um, And uh, I think that, but I will say that on paper, I could understand somebody who didn't relate to it, just kind of going like nothing really happens in this movie. And because they, they, didn't like read it and go, oh, I know this feeling. So I, yeah, I, I was very much not luck. I think it was um, everybody that showed up was uh, very much there and passionate from like the actors to like the makeup artists, you know, like my first day on set, I was like, oh, I've heard like 18 traumatizing stories today. This is, you know, uh, this is like, let's let's go, let's do it. Let's get in there.
1: Uh, well, that seems like such a great experience for you to have had. And um, I want to ask just a bit, Lastly, about you have your directorial debut coming out soon, which, speaking of horror, is The Dating Game, but it's about the serial killer, um, Rodney Alcala. Rodney Alcala, who, yeah. Who was on The Dating Game, and I'm sure Lewis has seen this episode.
2: Oh, well, as you might know, Anna, I'm a bit of a game show historian, so this really speaks to me, yes. Um, yeah.
4: That makes me very happy. Yeah, it's uh, I, it's a movie about that, incident um but it's sort of like from the perspective of the woman who went on the show um Mm -hmm. yeah it's a a script i'd been attached to for a couple years and then the opportunity to direct it came up very suddenly and i sort of pushed myself off the cliff which was totally terrifying but i had so much fun i yeah i've i like had more fun than i've had in years it was so awesome
2: because if i remember correctly either the woman who went on the date or chose him or whatever said something like, or somebody turned him down and said, he felt like a serial killer to me. Like somebody had detected like to the T that he was crazy.
4: That's interesting. I don't know about, I mean, I I'm embarrassed to say if that's the case, I'm embarrassed to say, I don't know that quote, but um, I will say that there are so many insane details about the, the show and the case that really illuminate the way that um, uh, women uh, even now, but especially at that time would kind of go against their gut. And um, yeah, we've tried to sort of pack all of those specific details into the movie.
2: I cannot wait to see that. What an, awesome, yeah. Perfect topic for a film there's there's a few game show movies out there, and this is I understand barely a game show movie, but there's a there's a couple tales out there that were, were supposed to have turned into movies that never did there's this guy who won this game show press your luck where he uh took the money, got it in ones, and uh he he gained the system anyway there's a lot of game shows attract a lot of strange personalities is what I'm saying so Clearly. Uh, congrats to you. <laughs> It's not shocking, too,
1: when you consider, you know, like the proliferation of, I guess, you know, like uh, scammers on like Bravo or Real Housewives or something, you know, it's like it's I think that when you look back to things like this, people like that are just sort of drawn to TV and attention in general. And they're always going to find a way to be front and center while thinking that they're hiding something.
4: Yeah, what kind of pathology lurks be- be beneath somebody who would go on a game show or be an actress or host a podcast? Dear God.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: well, now that we're
4: smithereens,
1: okay. Well, thank you so much for being here. I'm so, and, uh, I'm so,
4: so delighted to, to meet you guys. I'm such a big fan of both of you and I'm so happy that you guys are had me.
1: Yeah, and thank you for sharing uh, all of that with us too. Like, you know, really, I really hope people um, see Alice Darling because I think that you are fantastic
2: at it. Thank you. And I want to add one quick note. Years ago, I posted something about the singer, Laura Nero on Twitter and Anna responded something about, I don't know, wanting to play Laura Nero or something. Oh, I just no, want to no, say no. the taste was... level, the taste level involved with loving Laura Nero. You're one of the real ones. <laughs> oh yeah. my God.
4: I actually put, um, uh, uh, there's, I don't know if this, cause you know, we're just starting to edit the movie and you, you have to know that like, it will tell you what it needs to be and who knows what it's going to be. But um, Catherine Gallagher is uh, in the movie and, um Uh, I asked her to sing something in the shower and I was like, Oh, will you sing poverty train by Laura Nero. Cause I was like, I just want to like, you know, and I like, I was like, that was something that came out around that time. And the lyrics were sort of, I don't know, whatever. Um, but yeah, I was like desperately trying to put her in the movie somehow.
2: Oh, Yes. You've added another year to my life.
1: Uh, you're like a mushroom in Super Mario for Lewis.
2: Yeah, I've, I've tripled in size.
4: That's how, I, that's, that's how I feel about your Twitter. I'm like, I feel like Lewis wrote this tweet for me. Just for me. <laughs> Audience of one.
2: Honestly, it could be, basically. I'm looking at the demographics and it might just be you. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Also, whatever you said about showing my Twitter to Shirley MacLaine, I, it it my life's not the same. Please know oh, that I've oh, okay, yes. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, okay, because
4: yeah, did I? I did. I guess I did say that in something.
2: In, it was okay, uh, it because blew I was because
4: like, I was. I don't know. I was like maybe at some point I'll go on the, the they'd have me on the podcast and you know I could I could tell them then or whatever. But I'm glad that that reached you because yeah, I don't know how much I, I don't know how much I actually. Said about it. What did I say? It
2: was super brief. It was like, oh, I I wanted to explain to Shirley MacLaine what Twitter was. So I showed her, like, this, you know, this gay guy's tweets that are sometimes about Hollywood. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Is that
4: how I explained it? Well, (laughs)
2: some gay guy. Yeah. Because I was
4: like, because, uh, yeah, she was asking me about. Twitter and like, you know, what is it even for? And blah, blah, blah. And I was like, well, I'll show her some Louis Ritchell tweets and whatever. And I was like going through some of them, like looking for a winner. I think I was going mainly through the ones that I had like liked and, uh-huh. and she was still kind of like, okay, I don't get it. <laughs> what, huh? And then it was, I think it was this tweet that I'll now remember forever because I, you know, Shirley McLean was like repeating it back to me. She was like, this one about Christine Baranski, explain that to me, like where, where you'd said something about, like, if this weather gets any more severe, it would be Christine Baranski in a turtleneck.
2: <laughs> right? she, What's wrong with me, damn it? And she <laughs> said,
4: and she said what is that? What is that? What is that? And I just went, well, because, you know, Christine Baranski in a turtleneck, that's quite severe. So the weather, you know, like like a joke, you know. <laughs> and she was like, okay. And like a couple minutes <laughs> went by. A couple minutes went by, and she was sitting next to me. And then she went, "Steve Baranski and a turtle." <laughs> Like, wonderful.
2: Wonderful. Oh, my, oh my I God. I love that. Yes. Oh, fuck yes.
4: And I do remember thinking, one day I'm going to tell him that story.
2: Oh, my God. Unfortunately, you added three years to my life. And, in fact, an entire other life since it was Shirley MacLaine. So. I love that. <laughs> All right. Thank you for being here. Like yeah, thank person. you. Yeah, of
4: course. Thank you, guys.
1: Alice Darling is exclusively in AMC Theaters nationwide January 20th, 2023. When we're back, keep it. And we are back with our favorite segment of the episode, Keep It, the first official Keep It of 2023. Lewis. Yes. Why don't you
2: go first? Okay. I'm starting with the reversal. Because I think people expect us to bring up the new show, The Real Friends of WeHo. Which, first of all... Can we get another pitch on the title? The Real Friends? <laughs> I have heard... First of all, you know they're not even Real Friends, so don't even say <laughs> Real Friends. Use some I, other term. I have heard that it was initially
1: supposed to be a reboot of The A-List.
2: Which, as God intended, as we all know, we watched every episode of that show. I watched New York and Dallas, don't you worry. <laughs> um, but my keep it is not to this show. Uh, there's some, like, blow up on Twitter just about... Oh, no, it's it, it's Gay's sort of... Um, pretending to have drama with each other, to imitate the housewives, which they actually love, who actually belong on TV. A couple things. One, the star of the show was Brad Goreski. I would say Brad Goreski is one of the funniest reality stars of the past 20 years. I think if you're going to be critical of the show, you have to first give him his props, which is to say, the Rachel Zoe project was an A. When that show was on... It had no right to be that funny. Everybody on that show belonged there. Rachel Zoe, hilarious. What was her sister's, uh, assistant's name? Taylor. She was great. Brad was great. Dressed great. Um, so I feel like, first of all, you can't just dismiss this show out of hand. Because also, first of all, shows like this are going to exist every couple of years. There's always going to be, we're going to make the attempt at gay people hanging out, right? There should be the definitive version of that show. And we still don't really have it yet. So I respect the attempt, and I wish people would give it two episodes before we throw it in the pit with fi- Finding Prince Charming or whatever else <laughs> is down there. Uh, you know,
1: I would say that you know, like obviously, gays are more critical of other gays uh, than they are right. of other entertainment. And I'm intrigued for the show, if only because of the production company behind it is truly original, and they produce Real Housewives of Potomac, Summer House, um, Shots of Sunset. You know, so like they know what they're doing in the game. You know, they produce mm-hmm. some of the recent seasons of Atlanta. You know, like Real Housewives of Atlanta. And so the pedigree is there. I think that if you – reality shows are always about gathering the right personalities. You know, like you're going to need someone who's going to be annoying but fun. You're really going to – I think that what the show is really going to need is someone who's a quote-unquote producer. You know, Mm -hmm. like the best reality shows like that always do well when there's someone who – knows when they come to meet with everybody like we're making a tv show it's not just hanging out it's not just creating drama it is what's the purpose of the scene and what am i getting out of it and some of the people we don't know which i think is great because one criticism i was seeing from people online was who are these gays and like using like even the jennifer coolidge meme from white lotus like uh do you know these gays which Side note, side keep it to if if I hear one more person use these (laughs) days, they're trying to murder me again. Like, give it a
2: rest, right? Also, that was the most blatant like meme pull on White Lotus, and then you went and fucking did it. It's like, don't be a child. Like, like again, it was funny for a millisecond. Move on. You're murdering me now. (laughs) Um, Us, the viewer of your meme, but
1: the but the point of a show like this isn't you're supposed to know all these people. Like, like we we don't know all the fucking housewives when they start on a show, you know? And it's like, listen, I know gays like to play with their Barbie dolls, you know, and share memes of women and watch them tear each other down. But, you know, like, maybe we can let gays do that, too, you know? And if these people are awful, so are a lot of the fucking housewives that we like, okay? And at least we know that these gays didn't vote for Trump.
2: Right. You, you you think? I mean, presumably, we'll see, presumably, but yes. <laughs> but you're right. We have the right to be as idiotic as the housewives. I do. We still need that show where we, we prove just how low we can go.
1: I would say that the one thing I do sort of like wish the show sort of was like because I would love like a sort of housewives of show, but I think that like what really pulls you into those shows is like a community and a place that you haven't seen. I'm sure the vitriol will still maybe be there if it weren't like WeHo, you know, but I do think some of the responses also just because it feels more like a vapid, gays and WeHo TV show um, that's also taking time away from Drag Race. The Drag Race component is annoying people, too, because, you know, gays love seven hours of Drag Race every Friday.
2: Right, yeah. <laughs> they, they sit down. It's really like a David Lean experience. You don't leave the theater until you're four hours in.
1: Yeah, uh, but you know, I think like a community in like Orange County or something, like of gays, you know, like people we really don't know, but are just sort of awful people. That's what I want to see.
2: Right, I, I think there is potential there. I think you're right. I will also, say, I think
1: I'm sorry. Like, ta- like the worst part of the show is going to be Todrick because I don't want to see him on TV. But
2: man, I can't. I really can't think of too many celebrities who went on a reality show and came out looking worse than his brother (laughs) experience. It's interesting. But I want to say, I do think there is something interesting about Housewives. Like, they as characters, like, they have a husband, they have a kid, like, they have, like, a household to defend, a status to defend. Whereas gays, like, not that they can't be married and not that they can't have kids, but it feels like there's less stakes. Like, they have less reason to be melodramatic. I'm not saying I'm voting down the show for this reason, but, It'll be interesting to see what mix of gays will make a show like this work.
1: Well, that's also why I suggested, you know, like, you know, like if you had a community in like a city that we don't know, um, as as well as like WeHo, which is like with a very stereotypical like gays trying to be famous in LA thing. Because I'm like that level of quote unquote status just feels like played out to me. I think that there are plenty of gays that could be in a show like across America where they're fighting for some of that status and things that mm-hmm. um, the housewives are. Because, like, what, But what does status mean to like gays with money in like San Antonio or like Chicago or something? And like the status isn't related to am I famous online or like going to like book this role or like going to be on this red carpet. The status is, you know, like – I'm wealthy and I want to keep that wealth or, you know, like how, what is my standing in this community or, you know, like gays with real jobs, like, like a doctor or like a plastic surgeon or something like that. Like what the status I think comes from the community you're in, but also your job and like how you maintain your life and like how you make your money. And this show just feels very, it's uninteresting, you know, because like the search for fame is just sort of who cares.
2: And also, everybody kind of has it. Like, everybody's yeah. famous for a At little while, etc. At this point, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: No one is paying for their fame in sweat on this show. <laughs> okay? Because <laughs> right. fame costs.
2: You're, do you work for Ease Mysteries and Scandals from the year 1999? <laughs> Are you host A.J. Benza? Ira, what is your keep it? My keep it this week goes to Rihanna. Oh. Now, she is a, she is a one-time singer who is now singing again.
1: Yeah. Um... We're, she's, she's lifting it up, okay? Right. She, she arguably lifted it up. <laughs> I put it down gently. I haven't thought about it since. But I put it down, said, um, please do not flip it or reverse it. <laughs> We're good. We're yeah. good here. Uh, now, my keep it goes to Rihanna because I just, fig- I just discovered that I was being scammed by her. What? And Savage Fenty, apparently there's a lawsuit pending against Savage Fenty for scamming people by having them sign up for a quote-unquote VIP membership whenever they buy something. So what happened is last year I bought some silk boxers You don't from say. Uh, Fenty and like a like mesh tank top.
2: Right, you're going L- out.
1: Little did I know, my card was being charged $50 every month for a membership that I never even knew I signed up for because it was in the fine print.
2: Oh, wow. That's a lot of money to tack on to a boxer's bill.
1: That is okay, Rian. Like, you're Jin Shah. <laughs> I feel preyed upon. Yeah. And it's also, like, it's also that unfortunate that I used a card that, like, I don't really use. Because, like, I didn't notice it until, like, I was checking, like, my finances and taxes, like, end of the year. I was like, where the fuck is this charge coming from? And I go online, and I find out that many other people have been susceptible to this. And that's why there's the lawsuit, uh, because, if you know, it was found that it was an unsavory business practice.
2: Wow. I'm getting visions of, you know how the Celine Dion fans protested outside of the offices of Rolling Stone because she wasn't included in the 200 <laughs> singers list? I think the Savage Fenty buyers need to be outside a certain Super Bowl. I think that's what that's what I want to see.
1: Keep it, listeners. If you, too, have been scammed like <laughs> me, meet me in Arizona where we will get justice. Oh my Dial God. 1-800-JUSTICE from Rihanna.
3: <laughs> I was
2: waiting for the bubble print to appear under your under your face. Checker, or money, order, whatever, whatever. Yeah.
1: And then like a scrolling thing where it's like, um, you may not actually get justice
2: from Rihanna by partaking in Ira Madison III's
1: <laughs> <laughs> Justice.
2: Oh, my God. That is really unusual. I mean, I, 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 what can I say? I'm disappointed in Rihanna.
1: I I haven't been scammed like this since I signed up for the Kardashian credit card. I never did that. <laughs> I mean, it's
2: right there I, <laughs> in the name. Sorry.
1: I never did that. But do you
2: remember when they had a credit card? Oh, that's it's, – it's giving um, Trump vodka. It's –
1: <laughs> All right. Well, that's our show this week. Except there will be a bonus episode out later today.
2: That's right. about the Golden Globes. So, if you were disappointed with what we dished, it's incomplete and trust me, it can get so much worse. Yeah, I mean I'm waiting for like
1: a Aaron Taylor-Johnson type win.
2: I know, that's what the Golden <laughs> Globes used to be for. Like salmon fishing in the Yemen, are you going to pull this off? Who knows.
1: <laughs> a film that I only remember because of the Globes. I only, right. I've never seen it, but I know that title because of the Globes.
2: Mozart in the Jungle, etc., right? I think people watch that, didn't they? I I find that presumptuous. There's no way of knowing, and they won't mm. and they won't admit it if you say if you ask. Uh, well, thank you to Anna Kendrick
1: for joining us, and thank you for joining us for season six of Keep It. Is this like a community thing? Six seasons in a movie?
2: Right. Oh, oh, good lord! What's the movie going to be? And is Lucas Hedges available <laughs> to play you? Yeah, I think I think it has to be Lucas. Who's B? Hmm. Brian Tyree. We'll let the viewers decide. Oh, I don't hate that. I Brian hate Tyree,
1: that. Winston Duke. We'll go with one of those.
2: Brian Tyree, by the way, fabulous in Causeway, a movie we forgot to bring up.
1: Yeah, well, he is fabulous in it. I think J Law is nice to see her back on um, screen again. I think it's a good movie that doesn't have a lot of awards conversation because it's it's ultimately just sort of there.
2: It, you know, it, it, it doesn't feel like a competitive movie. It's just good. Yeah. yeah
1: it's just good. Mm-hmm. It's, 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 uh,
2: you're just hanging out. Right. Just like on Keep It. <laughs> See you next week or tonight. Yeah. Keep
1: <laughs> It, the cause away of podcasts. <laughs> and that is our episode. Don't forget to listen to our Golden Globes special later today. And also, remember to check out full episodes of Keep It on the Uncultured YouTube channel. And to please rate and review Keep It on your podcast platform of choice, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, etc. Five-star reviews. If it's got to be four stars, I don't want it. See you on the next Keep It. Keep It is a Crooked Media production. Our senior producer is Kendra James. Our producer is Chris Lord. And our associate producer is Malcolm Whitfield. Our executive producers are Ira Madison III, that's me, and Louis Vertel. This episode was recorded and mixed by Evan Sutton. Thank you to our digital team, Matt DeGroot, Nar Malconian, and Delon Villanueva, for production support every week. And as always, keep it as filmed in front of a live studio audience.
3: As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love made-in cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust made-in. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use made-in cookware. Shop chef-quality pots and pans at madeincookware.com.
0: Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style.